By the way, my name is Josh Carstensen, lead pastor here. If you're new, welcome. Uh, we'll be in John chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one somewhere around in front of you, a little black book and a chair in front of you on page 887 is eventually where we're going to be. But we're going to start with some words um, from John, same author, same man, uh, but from a few years uh, removed from our text today. And so at the end of his life, the very towards the very, very end of his life, uh, John is banished to an island. Um, the Jews try to kill him for his profession of faith in Jesus. He's banished to an island. And on this island, uh, he gets a revelation from Jesus himself. Uh, this is after Jesus has lived. He died. He, he went back to heaven. But Jesus gives this revelation to John. Uh, and towards the beginning of this book, John has these words from Jesus given to seven different churches. And so these would have been actual churches, gatherings of people. Um, so you can imagine receiving a letter written to Northwest Hills. Uh, and to these seven different churches, uh, Jesus has a number of different things to say. And he says something really encouraging, and he gives um, a word uh, of of not just encouragement, but a challenge to each of these churches as well. And so you can imagine, you open up this letter and it says, okay, here are the things that you're doing well. Um, you guys are, are loving people well. You're doing this well. You're doing that well. However, I need you to work on a few things. And uh, I, I don't know about you, but I, I, I like the, the compliments. I like it when things are going well. I, I don't always love it when there's a, a lot of hard things to hear and hard things to be worked on. But you can imagine reading this letter um, from Jesus himself to your church. And um, all is well in terms of uh, a good and bad for every single church, except you get to the last church. And you get to the, the um, chapter 3 of Revelation to the church at Laodicea, and the very last church, this is the very last of the seven, uh, Jesus has nothing good to say about this church. So there's not, hey, this is what you're doing well, this is what you need to work on. It's all, hey, you think that you're doing some things well, but, but you're not. He has some really strong words. He says, you think that you're rich. He says, you think that you've made it. You think that you have no needs, right? He says, you've got the program. You think you've got the staff, right? You think you've got the building. You think you've got the carpet. You think you've got the social media presence. You think you've got the book deals. You think that you're going really, really well. You've got a lot of people coming. You've got um, all kinds of programmatic things that you feel like you're doing well on your hit and budget. Everything seems to be going well he says, but you're blind, you're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, and you're naked. To a church that feels like they're doing really, really well. All right, let that settle in. Like, I've been to churches that know that they're not doing well. And I've been a part of churches that feel like we are doing pretty well. And I can't imagine getting this letter from Jesus where you feel like, okay, we, it seems like we, we've got things that we're doing pretty well. And Jesus says, you're poor, you're wretched, you're pitiable, you're naked, you're blind. In verse 18 of chapter 3, Jesus says this to the church. He says, I counsel you to buy from me true wealth, true vision, and true honor. To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. He says, here's the deal. You think that you're doing church well, but while you think that you're doing church well, there's something that's missing in your church. And that's me. He says, I'm nowhere to be found. And then he has some terrifying words. And I feel like I grew up in Sunday school hearing these words and they were completely ripped out of context. I feel like it was so unfair to hear these words as a Sunday school kid. Or maybe they were teaching me something that I didn't get back then. Here's these words. He says, I stand 
outside and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will eat with them and they with me. Right? And I remember growing up thinking like, oh, that must be for the non-Christian, right? If you don't have Jesus in your heart, he's on the outside and he's knocking. And if you just let him in, he'll come be with you. But that's not the context here. Jesus is writing a letter to the church. He's writing a letter to a group of people who should believe in God, who should have the center of their lives around dwelling with God. And Jesus is saying, hello, I'm not in your assembly. Like, I'm not with your people. Like, you're, you're in there. I'm out there. And this is a letter to the church. Well, how in the world does that happen? How can you have a church that feels like they're doing well? That feels like we're rich, like we're doing good things. All these great things are happening, yet Jesus is saying, I'm on the outside ringing the doorbell. Will someone open up the door? How do we get there? What happened? And why is this such a strong warning to me and you? Right, if we go back a few thousand years, and, and this is some of the stuff that we've been studying, really the last year and a half, two years, if you go back to how the church started, and you go back to what it meant for God to dwell with his people, for Jesus to be a part of what he's doing, you got to go all the way back to Abraham, right? Where God calls to this wandering man, and he says, I'm going to use you to be a great nation to the world because I want one thing, I want to dwell with you. I want you to know me, and I want to know you, and through that, I want the world to know who I am. Right, And we saw in the study of the Exodus that we did all of last year, we saw God's heart to dwell with his people. And we saw that initially as this nation grew and grew, that they were enslaved to the Egyptians. And so while they were enslaved, they could not dwell with God in the way that they desired and in the way that God desired. And the, uh, the Egyptians oppressed them. They enslaved them. And God's heart was that they would be free so that they could worship God and be with him and dwell with him. We talked about freedom, right? Freedom is really the opportunity to dwell with God. Freedom is not the opportunity to go live however you want. That's literally hell. Freedom, being with Christ, is dwelling with him. And so that's what happened. God frees them. He sets them free. They leave slavery in Egypt and God dwells with them. Remember how he does that? He dwells with them in this place that we call the tabernacle. Right, God with us. He tabernacles with us. This this portable tent-like structure where God's holy presence in some uh, unique way is with his people and they're able to be with him. And it's this magnificent scene where God is finally with his people. Right, And eventually after they travel all around and, and God's teaching them lessons, they get to this place, they get to this city that they've been promised for so long, the Holy Land. They get to Jerusalem and King David has a vision on the top of Mount Moriah where Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac. He says, I want to build a temple here. I want to build a permanent place where you will dwell so that we will always be with you. And God says no to David, but he says yes to his son Solomon. And so Solomon builds this temple. Right? He builds this place and God's presence dwells there. And it's this, it's the centerpiece of their culture, of everything that they're about as a people where God is dwelling with them and they with him. But one generation after Solomon, one generation, God's people turned their back on God. And when God dwelt with people, they said, you know, we're, we're okay with just going through the motions of church, just going through the motions of all the religious activity, but we don't really care about you. We don't care if our hearts are right. We're just going to go through all these motions. 
And that's what you get for a number of generations, for a long time. And eventually God says this. He says, hey, if you're satisfied with just going through the motions of church without me, I'm going to leave. And we talked about how in Ezekiel chapter 10, the Spirit of God leaves the temple. And for years and years and years, this people went through the motions of going to temple, but God wasn't even there. Eventually, God, um, God says, you know what? Like, if you're satisfied with just going through these motions without me, I'm going to take it all away. I'm going to take your ability to gather. I'm going to take your assembly, and I'm going to wipe it all away. Which, side note, and I'm not like a major conspiracy guy. I'm not the guy that's always saying God is exactly doing this. But I wonder sometimes if one of the things that's happening through COVID is God saying, let me strip it all away for a little bit. And let's see where your heart is. So God strips it all away. The city, the nation, the town, the language, everything. Right? When Babylon comes in and destroys Jerusalem. So they're shipped off. They're slaves. They have no temple. God is not dwelling with them. And then after 50 years, right? Persia conquers Babylon. They let them go back and they rebuild. They rebuild this temple. But it's not anything like it was before. Right? Solomon builds this magnificent, glorious, huge temple, but under Zerubbabel, you can read about in Ezra and Nehemiah, they go back and they rebuild, but it's a small temple. They don't have all the same resources. Um, this isn't their home base really anymore because a lot of people are still back in Babylon, but they go back and they rebuild, but it's a shadow of what was. And so they're rebuilding, and as they rebuild, God, we're, we're not ever told that God's presence comes back to this temple. Fast forward 500 years, the Romans conquer the Persians, and you get a guy by the name of Herod the Great, right? Anyone remember Herod the Great? Go back to Bethlehem when Jesus, little boy, he's the one who kills all the little boys trying to make sure that they don't find the next king of the Jews. This man, Herod the Great, uh, wanted to be great amongst the Jews. Uh, He was not a Jew, but he wanted to win over the affection of all the people. And so what he does, he does something that no one else has ever done before. As a non-Jew, he makes it his primary goal to rebuild this temple. And he rebuilds it in a way that's much better than even Solomon's temple. So starting in about 19 BC, they start rebuilding this temple. And what he does, he does work that can be seen to this day. On the top of Mount Moriah, they take these massive stones, about five tons each, and they expand the perimeter of the Temple Mount. Right, So they, they bring in uh, about 10,000 different hired helpers, and this takes many, many years to build this entire project. I think it was about 63 years to rebuild the temple. So they rebuild it. They hire 10,000 uh, workers. He hires 1,000 uh, different pastors, essentially, Levites back in the day, because uh, they were the only ones who could go into certain parts of the temple. So these were the people who had to uh, be cross-trained and learn a new trade so that they could build. And so they're in this massive building project. And 46 years into this building project, Jesus walks into this temple And we're going to see what happens when once again Jesus is on the outside and he's saying, guys, would you let me in? You're doing your thing, but I'm nowhere to be found. And this is the scene that we walk into in John chapter 2, 46 years into rebuilding of this temple, really for gain that had nothing to do with God. So I'm going to ask that you would stand with me and we're going to start in John chapter 2 verse 13. And we're going to see the words of Jesus as he walks up to and encounters this temple. 
After I'm done, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord, and you're going to say, thanks be to God. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making a a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you can take a seat. This is this awful moment of irony. Right When you go all the way back to when the Jews were enslaved by Egypt, they were oppressed, they were abused, they were taken advantage of, and they were not allowed to dwell with God freely. And what does Jesus walk into? He walks into a temple where, once again, they're being abused, they're being oppressed, and they're not able to dwell with God freely. So we see this massive moment where God's people were freed to do something. They were freed to do it. And then they themselves turn around and abuse themselves the same way that they were abused before. This is a moment of absolute sorrow, of sadness. So what does Jesus walk into? Once a year, this is, uh, it talks about uh, verse 13. We see it was the Passover of the Jews. This was this moment that a lot of us have, have heard about, the, um, this moment where once a year that they would take seven days and they would remember uh, that Jesus freed them from Egypt, essentially. And he freed them. And one of the things that he did in the process of freeing them um, was to spare their children if they were to kill a certain lamb or goat and spread its blood on their doors. And God disciplined and punished everyone who didn't have that. And so once a year, they would come to this temple. They would come to Jerusalem from all around. If you were within some hundred miles, you would come and you would celebrate God freeing you out of slavery through the process of sacrifice. Right? This whole theme of sacrifice is so important to this whole idea of worship. So everyone here is bringing animals. They're sacrificing. They're worshiping God by bringing an offering. And this has been the case of how we worship God forever. Like you go all the way back to the very beginning of our Bibles and you go all the way to Genesis chapter 4 and you've got Adam and Eve and you've got their two sons, Cain and Abel. And how did they worship God? They brought a sacrifice. They brought an offering. You remember Abel brings, uh, he brings an animal. That's his best choice offering. And Cain, he, he doesn't necessarily bring his best. He brings um, some of his crop. But from the beginning of time, when we worship God, it's all about sacrifice. It's all about bringing something from ourselves that's costly to us, something that is of value to us to say that, God, you have provided. God, you are good. God, you have freed us. And God, I am in need of you. Man, so... Think about our lives and think about what it looks like for us when we assemble, right? When we gather as a church, when we worship God, the first question that we should be asking ourselves is, what am I sacrificing? What is this costing me? You know, I'll be honest, very often on Sunday mornings, that's not necessarily the first question that comes to my mind. 
right? As I, as I wake up and I'm getting ready to gather with God's people is the first question that comes to my mind. What am I willing to give up this morning? Right? If, if most of us were to be honest, there's, there's a part of us that, that asks questions a whole lot more like these. God, what am I going to get out of this morning? Right? Is the message going to be compelling enough? Is it going to be long enough? Is it going to be short enough? Right? Is the kids' program going to be good enough? Is the coffee going to be good? Are there going to be donuts? Are there going to be people who like me? Or am I going to like the people there? Right? It can be really, really easy to get into this mode of when we think about church, we think about what is it in it for me and is it convenient? Right? Are they going to serve me well? What do I get out of this? But forever, from the beginning of time, worship has always been about the question of what am I giving? What am I bringing? What am I sacrificing? What is this costing me? Man, as a, a church leadership, we always live in this tension between creating a church for, for Christians and for those who are not quite Christians yet, those who are seeking. Right? Because the reality is, if this gathering were only for Christians, I would think it would look a lot more raw and less polished than what it is because the ask is that you would come and that we're ready to give, that we're not just kind of trying to make this as comfortable as possible and as smooth as possible and everything as nice and neat and orderly and programmed. But the ask is like, no, we're, we're here to give something. And so we're always kind of in this tension of trying to figure out what does this look like for the Christian and for the non-Christian? How do we make this as welcoming and as smooth and as uh, nice as possible for those who are trying to meet God? And how do we create a space for those who love God, who are already committed and bought in? How do we create that space where we're all about sacrifice, not just about our convenience? Man, it's something that we wrestle with all the time. See, during Passover... Um, And really from the beginning of time, there's this tension or there's this kind of natural bent in the human heart to be like Cain, right? To be like Cain who says, you know what? Yeah, um, I'm going to give you something, Lord, but I'm not going to give you my best. And you go back to the very beginning of what Cain does and he says, okay, like I've got some stuff, but you know, maybe this, I, I don't need it all necessarily. And it's not my best, but it's something, God, would you be satisfied with something? And God says, no, I want your best. And this is what was happening too in Jesus' time because what happened initially is that you've got people who are supposed to bring a spotless animal. So what they would do is they'd find the three-legged animal and they'd say, you know what, I don't really need this on my farm anymore, but Jesus is happy with something. God would be happy with something. So can I just bring this? It's not really going to do me much good back at home. And so people started trying to figure out how can I cut corners here? How can I figure out not to give Jesus my best? But how can I figure out to throw him something so that I feel good about that I'm doing something but it's not necessarily going to cost me and my family a whole lot. And so what happens here is because this became something that was common, you have this whole system that was built around trying to regulate people's offerings. Right? And this creates all kinds of levels of abuse. Right? Because now what happens is you've got these regulators at the church saying, okay, let me see your offering. Is that good enough? And eventually they see this as an opportunity to take advantage of people, right? So they say, okay, here, you came from 100 miles away. You brought your sacrifice. And you know what? Like, yeah, I don't know if this sheep's going to quite do it. And I know that you, it was a lot of effort to get that sheep here. But you know what? It's, it's not going to be good enough. And so I'm going to buy this sheep from you for $10. I'm going to put it back in this, this back room over here. And you need to buy this sheep. And unfortunately, this sheep's $100. But you have a captive audience here, so they have to buy this sheep, which is approved for temple sacrifice. And so $100 buys this sheep. And then the next person in line, you bring out the sheep that you just bought for 10 and you sell it for 100 to the next guy in line. This was happening over and over and over. 
Again, on top of that, you've, you've got this system where um, every uh, male Jew had to give a temple tax every year. This has been a portion of his income every year to um, support the work that God, of God's temple and what he was doing here. And so um, they would bring money every year to the temple uh, with, that they traveled from from far away once a year if they weren't living in Jerusalem. Um, but they figured out, okay, we can make a little extra money here, not just the money that people bring, but we can figure out a way to charge more for this. So what they did is they said, you know, we're going to make our own money because we don't want your pagan, uh, you know, kind of emperor on any money that we're going to deal with. So, so when you bring money here, you have to exchange it and you have to use our money, but we're going to charge you a percentage. We're going to charge you, historians say anywhere between 10 and 12% to make this exchange so that the money you give us, we're actually going to accept. And so you've got this whole system where God's people are being abused by God's people. It seems wrong. It seems so unfair. It seems so unjust. On top of that, most people believe that all this activity was happening in the court of the Gentiles. Right, so on top of this massive temple mount that was about 30 acres at the time, this is, you can still go there to, the, to this day. The, um, these five ton stones that were built to kind of rebuild this whole new foundation, that is what we call the Western Wall today. So people will go to that to this day. But in this, in this area, there was only one area where if you were not a Jew, you were allowed to go. And this was called the Court of the Gentiles. Right, and so they, many people believe that this, all this activity, all this buying, all this trading, all this selling, all this abuse of people was happening in this court. And this is someone who's, who's not a Jew and they're trying to figure out, does God exist? I heard from my neighbor that God is good and he wants to know me. So how do I figure this out? I'm going to go to church. But instead of being able to come into the church, they had to stay out in the parking lot, right? But you can imagine they're out in the parking lot, but in the parking lots where all this commerce is taking place. And so they're going, I want to learn about God. How can I learn about him when I'm out there? And the only things I'm seeing out there are the buying and trading of animals and the ripping off of people in this exchange of money. If we're not careful, church very quickly can turn into this insider game where it's all about the comfort and ease of those who are accustomed to it. And this is what Jesus walks into. Man, so just a, a quick side note, as, as a church, like I said, we're always trying to figure out this tension of how do we make this place a place where for the believer, the expectation is that we're coming to, to give our best, to give an offering, to give a sacrifice, but for the belief, but for the unbeliever, for the seeker, we're trying to create the best experience possible, right? We're trying to create like as smooth as an experience. We're trying to like, whether it's an online something, whether it's all the marketing, whether it's the communication, whether it's the welcoming, whether it's all these things, all these efforts that we're trying to do is we're trying to say, Hey, come learn about Jesus. We're trying to take away as many barriers as possible to say, you know what? Like this man changes everything. I want you to get to know him. And so we go through a lot of effort, right? Let this be a reminder. Let us not try to create all these barriers that make life about us, the insider. Man, in John 2, Jesus confronts the bent in our hearts, right? The bent in our heart to make worship about us and not about sacrifice. That if we're not careful, we will use people to get what we want. We'll use people to get our own agendas and we'll forget that there are many people who are seeking and ultimately, if we're not careful, we can do church where God is not present. So what does Jesus do? Some of you, this is your favorite part of the Bible. He makes a whip of cords and he drives them out of the temple. We keep reading, it says, with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of money changes and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. 
So he makes a whip. And this isn't a whip, like a scourging whip for, for people, um, for um, criminals. This would have been more of a cattle whip to drive out all kinds of uh, cattle. I've seen these whips. I've seen them when, I, when my wife and I went to uh, Africa 20 years ago. Some odd shepherds would have these whips. They're long, eight foot. You'd crack them and, and they would move cattle with these. They would move uh, sheep and, and goats and cows. And this is what Jesus does. And he breaks up all this activity. And uh, we read in verse 18, everyone's going like, wait a second, who are you? What kind of authority do you have to be able to do this? And they say, what sign do you show for us to do these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said to them, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. Can you imagine like watching this? You're living in Jerusalem, you're from around, and you've seen the effort that's taking place to build this temple. And here's Jesus saying, oh no, I'm going to destroy this, and in three days I'm going to raise it back up. Man, what was Jesus referring to? What was he talking about? He's obviously talking about his body here. right? So what's missing in this church when Jesus shows up? What's missing altogether is that what's missing is a heart for God. What's missing is the fact that Jesus himself is the temple. That Jesus says, I have something so much better. What you need is not all this activity. You don't need 46, 63 years. I think it's ironic, kind of side note, not on my notes. It took 63 years to build this thing. And in year 70, it's destroyed by the Romans, completely destroyed. It's a bit of irony right there. But God says, what you guys need is me because this temple, what it is, it's not a church because the only thing that makes a church is my presence. That's what makes a church. And when he gives this warning in Revelation chapter three to a gathering of people and he says, hey guys, hey gals, you can gather and you can think you're doing things well, but unless I'm here, it's not a church. You can have your temple, but unless you have me, you don't have the presence of God. As we look at these first two stories, kind of wrapping it up here, I, I don't think it's a mistake that John starts here. I think it's this beautiful gift, because you remember you go back to last week, and you go to the, this like, kind of warm, happy Jesus of turning water into wine. Right? You get this moment last week where you remember, in our greatest shame, right? this moment where we've worked so hard for something, and yet we fail, and in our greatest shame, God gives us his honor. I talked about that last week. But then the exact opposite is true in this very next passage, because what was this? For them, this was their greatest honor. Right? The church, the, the temple, this was their greatest effort and their greatest honor. They didn't think that they were shamed. They thought that they were honored. This whole system was all about bringing honor to God, that through our efforts, we're going to bring honor. And Jesus says, when you try and you think that you are bringing honor... This is actually your greatest shame. So you have a reversal of things going on. In our greatest shame, Jesus gives us his honor. And when we think that we're the most honorable, Jesus says, no, this is your shame. So as we wrap it up and as we think this week, I think the obvious question that we have to ask ourselves is, where's our heart when we come together? Right, where's our heart before the Lord? Are we just going through the activities? Are we going through the motions? Because all the way from Genesis 4 to Revelation 3, we receive a warning that says, the bent of the human heart is to go through the motions of being part of a religious system while missing a heart for God. 
And if that's not a warning, I don't know what is. This whole week I've just been wrestling, even this morning, trying to like dial in, okay, we got lights and music and this and that, and there's all these extra things that we're trying to do well. But ultimately, like asking myself, like asking my heart, is, is it right before God? Am I trying to bring something that's honorable to me, to us? Or are we trying to sit and live and breathe in the honor that is the temple of Christ, his body, his death, and his resurrection? Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you that your honor is what we need. God, I thank you that last week in a season where in our deepest shame you give us your honor, and then this week we see very often what we feel like is our richness, what we feel like is our thriving, you say that we're wretched, we're pitiable, we're blind, and we're naked. God, unless we have you, we have nothing. And so this picture of you standing on the outside of the church, knocking and saying, hey, if anyone in there hears me, I want to come in. God, let that not be a guilting for us, but let that be just a a little warning light that when we think that we're being honorable, unless you are at the center of it, there is no honor. Jesus, we need you more than we need anything else. And I thank you that you take what now would be our shame and you give us your honor. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.